Father, give us pliable hearts, um, soft hearts that um, we'd be able to take off our armor, our flak jackets today, the uh, convictions that we have, the opinions that we have, and expose them to the light of the word and the light of the Holy Spirit to be penetrated and that in all things Jesus Christ might be made much of, we pray in his name. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible with you or your smartphone, if you wouldn't mind opening up to the book of John, chapter 3. That'll be the first text we look at in a little bit. First, some introductory matters. As I said last week, I don't typically depart from my sermon schedule that I have had planned, uh, and I don't typically do that on purpose. So I try to seek the Lord for what he has um, for us as a body and um, uh, so feel like it's, um, I'm slow to dispense with that and to jump into another topic. However, uh, there have been occasions over the years where I've said, what's everybody talking about today? I mean, literally everybody. And uh, we need to set plans aside and address those things. So last week we talked about the Christian citizen and COVID-19. And today we're going to um, have a second of two messages that are on the day's events. This one entitled, The White Christian and Race Relations. The White Christian and Race Relations. I'm gonna assume that everybody I'm talking to, uh, you might be listening in or watching, and this is not true of you. Um, It's gonna be a few people here that won't be true of them, but. My message is for white Christians. So we have been um, talking about race a lot in the last number of months. Uh, In the wake, uh, especially of George Floyd's death at the hands of a Minneapolis police officer back in the end of May. But really that was kind of the culmination of a number of high profile uh, black American deaths in previous months in February. Ahmad Arbery, who was an uh, unarmed black man out for a jog, was uh, accosted and ultimately killed by two white men. And then in March, um, uh, Brianna Taylor, who in Kentucky was uh, asleep in bed with her boyfriend, there was some commotion outside. Uh, police say they identified themselves. Uh, Taylor's boyfriend said that's not the case. He didn't know what was happening. He grabbed a gun that he was license to carry, he fired a shot, and officers unloaded, killing uh, Brianna. So then George Floyd, uh, whose death was videotaped and then spread around the world. And so in the wake of this death, again, the tension between uh, white and black or white and people of color uh, surfaced. There was initially peaceful protests Uh, some of which evolved into riots. And I don't know about you, but as a a, a white American, um, when protests escalate to riots, it tends to get our attention, I think. Things that really aren't topics of conversation typically for us as white Americans suddenly become the topics of conversation. 
and that's too bad. If there's really a problem that it takes something like riots to get our attention, Dr. Martin Luther King, who was no fan of riots, nevertheless said a riot is the language of the unheard. I think no matter what color you are, what ethnicity you are in the United States, it's hard to deny that there's ongoing race tensions between white Americans and black Americans. The preliminary question I want us to wrestle with a bit, though, is the question, is racism in the United States a structural or systemic problem? It's been interesting. I, I, I have had more conversations about race in the last year than I have had all my life. And one of the things that I have discovered in those conversations is that perceptions widely vary among Americans about the race problem, its causes, its solutions, um, its essence. And that's what I'm talking about when I ask the question, is racism in the United States systemic or structural? Is that its essence? It certainly once was. We have history of slavery that goes back not just to 1619 we often think of, but there's evidence that already Africans were being imported to the New World as late as the, uh, or as early as the 1490s, late 1490s. But then slavery was abolished, 1865. Slavery was replaced, though, by Jim Crow laws in 20 states in the Union. Six of them were not in the Deep South, including Maryland, our southern border. But then the Jim Crow laws that basically said if you were black, your children couldn't go to the schools that white children went to, that if you were black, you couldn't ride in the same portion of the bus that white Americans could ride. You couldn't go to the same public restrooms that whites could go to. You couldn't live in the community where the whites were living. You couldn't work at the same jobs that whites would work at, or if you did, you would make substantially, earn substantially less. And all of this was codified in states, in counties, and municipalities. Dr. Martin Luther King brought an end to that, by and large, 1964, 1965, Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. It was interesting, in 1964, when the march was scheduled to go from Selma, Alabama to uh, Montgomery, Alabama, and turned very bloody, peaceful march, and uh, Bull Connor and his police officers and other non-policemen waded into the crowd with batons and clubs wrapped with barbed wire. There happened to be some television cameras nearby. And everybody in the United States saw it on the nightly news that night, and it changed everything. When President Johnson couldn't hide any longer, nor could Congress. It's interesting. At that time, this is the, this is the kind of structural, systemic problems that we certainly had in this country. At that time, when the march was scheduled to go from Selma to Montgomery, 
the county that Selma was in was 50% black. And yet of the registered voters in that county, 2% were black. Housing was a problem. If you've read anything about redlining, where real estate agents would draw red lines around certain areas of the community, these were where white people lived, and over here is where black people lived. And if a black person tried to move outside of that area, they couldn't. It was structural. It wasn't just, or might not have been the case, that the real estate agent was biased. But he knew that if this person tried to get a mortgage over in this area, the bank was going to say no. And they weren't necessarily or just going to say no because they happened to be racist, but because the federal government would not insure the mortgage. There's a very troubling book on this that you should read called The Color of Law. Systemic. That began to change, 1968, Fair Housing Act. A couple of other acts in the 1970s added some more teeth to that. Structurally, these things have changed. Slavery, Jim Crow laws, redlining. Today, the debate's about whether or not black Americans are being targeted by police. George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. We'll get back to 19, or 2014. Michael Brown, Ferguson, Missouri, and we could go on and on and on. And I don't want to debate that this morning. I'll say this. We have a number of police officers here at Keystone that serve us, serve this community, and serve Jesus Christ. And I am distraught that the whole police force across the United States, all 800,000 of them, are being um, portrayed as if they're all racists. And I, that's not the case. There are some studies out about the debate about whether black Americans are being targeted by police, the study results are mixed as to whether or not, especially shootings by officers concerning black suspects, or, or whether it's a races, race thing or a police brutality thing or training thing and so forth. The studies that are being done about black Americans being hassled by police, more readily arrested by police, those results are far more compelling to be concerned about. I think it's unavoidable to say that there is certainly some structural racism that still exists in the United States. But to know that and to believe that really helps very little for us as individuals. And tragically, one of the sad things is that it provides everybody with cover. It provides everybody with excuses. And so, for example, the Antifa agitants turning peaceful protests into violent protests, it gives them an excuse to tear down a system that it desperately wants to replace, the whole system. Burn it to the ground, start over. Capitalism democracy, a republic, get rid of it. It gets cover to, uh, cover to rioters who destroy businesses and homes, steal from Target and Best Buy, because after all, it just represents the evil system. 
It gives cover to the organization Black Lives Matter, who not only push a worthy anti-racism agenda, but a lot of other troubling agendas that are anti-biblical. But it also gives us white citizens cover. It lets us act as if there's nothing we can do personally about race relation problems. Because after all, it's a structural problem. I can't fix anything that's structural. I can't fix anything that's an ism. It's one of the reasons I don't like to talk about racism. I like to talk about race relations. Relations speaks about connections between people. And ism, whether it's racism or capitalism or communism or any other ism, is an it. It's an it that I can't do anything about. It's an it that maybe only the politicians can do something about or the social engineers. It's not a me and you. It's not an us and them issue. You follow what I'm saying? If we look simply as race problems, as structural, then it gives us cover. We don't have to do anything. And this is, this is my big idea this morning for us as white Christians. To make a supernatural contribution to race relations in America. And what I mean by that is improving race relations in America. To make a supernatural contribution to race relations in America will require more of white Christians than simply not harboring ill will towards people of color. It's going to require more of us than simply not harboring ill will towards people of color. And some of that comes from conversations that I've had over the years with white brothers and sisters would say, I'm not prejudiced, I'm not racist, I'm not bigoted, I've never harmed anyone as a person of color, I've never thought ill of them, and yet the problems remain. And the question is, how engaged is the white church in being part of solving a problem that's really between people it's not just an it. All right. So three points I want to share this morning, starting with he loves you and them, meaning God. God loves you and he loves them. And now we're in John 3.16. Say it with me if you have it memorized. And I don't care what translation you have it memorized out, out of. It'll just sound like we're speaking in tongues. Ready? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We love that verse, don't we? It's good news. That God gave his one and only son to solve the biggest problem we ever had and it wasn't racism. It's our rebellion and sin against God. We normally look at this verse when we talk about evangelism and about the importance of how the world needs Jesus and how Jesus can take a sinner's life and bring him in relationship, back in relationship with the Father. But I want you to concentrate on those first five 
words this morning. God so loved the world. God so loved the world. When Jesus says the world, he wasn't speaking about this big planet, this blue and green and brown thing from, that looks from outer space, but rather all the people that inhabit the planet, now pushing 8, million, or 8 billion. God so loved all of them, every last one of them, no matter how much or how little melanin, they, melanin there's in their skin. No matter what their diet consists of, no matter what kinds of clothes they wear, no matter what language they speak, yes, he loves you and me, and he loves them. You know, it's interesting. We're divided up around the world into groups, right? So we're, we're talking this morning about race, so we're divided into color groups. We're white or tan, reddish, and then there are black, and then there are brown and other off hues and tans, darker tans, and then there are folks whose skin almost has an olive complexion. But that's not the only way we're divided. We're divided along language groups, and we're divided along custom groups. Groups are not a bad thing. Sometimes we have the conversations that swirl around the idea that we should become a colorblind society or we become, you know, we don't see uh, ethnic differences or cultural differences. Do you know that God made groups on purpose? Ten chapters after, so relatively early in the human history, ten chapters after God created humanity, human beings had failed to carry out two commands that God had given to them. One, to fill the, fill the earth. They were all hanging out one spot. He said in Genesis 1.28 to fill the earth and subdue it or govern it. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the other thing that they were to do was to make his name great as they went. So Tower of Babel was the consequence of two problems, two areas of disobedience by the human race. One, they weren't scattering. And two, instead of making God's name great, they were trying to make their own name great. Name great. So uh, they decided they're going to build a pyramid with steps, and they're going to build it up to the heavens so that they could become famous and make their name great. God looked down and said, this is a problem. And so he decided to mix up their languages. I just, I don't know how this was done, but I, in my mind, I imagined this. So they're building this big ziggurat. And a guy who was working at the pyramid goes to the guy that's milling the stones in the quarry. And he tells them he wants them to cut a certain bevel on this particular stone. But as he's telling this guy this, the other guy can't understand him. And he says, what do you have, marbles in your mouth? Talk so I can understand you. And the other guy doesn't understand what he's saying. He says, what, why are you talking gibberish? I can't understand. This is the bevel I want on this stone. And all of a sudden, people are realizing the folks that I could understand just a few minutes ago, I can't understand now. And people began to organize based on the languages that they could understand. 
And this group of people that spoke this language would move out to the northeast. And this group of people that spoke this language would move to the south. And this group of people that spoke this different language over here to the southwest and on and on and on. Why? Well, God got them moving out into the areas they were supposed to go but never had bothered to. And he made it abundantly clear that the name that I want you to proclaim and make famous is not yours, but mine. Now, we have to see this. We have to be careful that we don't see what God did here just as a judgment. In other words, if we see it that way, we'll conclude that these groups were a bad thing. No, God put them into groups to accomplish his purposes. In fact, if we take that way back date in history and then run through history past the present well into the future we see ultimately that even in heaven, groups exist. Number one, under point one, is that groups are not the problem. God is the one who's divided us. Point number two is that groups are going to endure. Revelation chapter seven, we've got a picture in heaven here. John has been seeing this vision that Jesus is giving him. And he says in verse 9 and 10, Revelation 7, After this I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne before the Lamb. And they were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands, and they were shouting with a great roar, Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. That's his, that is Jesus. Now, did that ever strike you as curious when you read that? That there's a picture in heaven, not as the redeemed mass, but as redeemed people who are from all different kinds of groups. Now, this was a vision. How did John know that they were, spoke different languages, that they were from different cultures, different people groups? Could it be that when they sang this song, for example, they all sang in their own language and yet John heard it in a language he understood? Say, well, that'd be weird. Isn't that what happened in the day of Pentecost? This group of people is proclaiming the praises of God in their own language, which we assume would have been, they were Jewish Christians, living in Jerusalem, probably were speaking Greek. And yet these people from Egypt and from um, this place and this place, they all heard this group that was speaking in one language, they heard it in their own language. Maybe in heaven people are still speaking their own languages. Could it be that he recognized them from different people groups because they had different attire on? I don't know if we're going to have clothing in heaven. We at least have white robes. But maybe there's some things on those white robes or decorations uh, 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 you know, over them that would mark us from a different one people group and this, group from a, this person from another people group. There seems to be some way that John recognized that these people were from different groups. Groups are going to endure. There's nothing bad about them. Here's the problem. Our view of groups and God's view of groups tends to differ. 
because God's love for people transcends their group identity while ours can be limited just to just our group. God's love for people transcends group identity while ours can be limited to just our group. And hence, when we read John 3.16 and we hear God say, I love the world so much I gave them Jesus, we might look at our lives and say, I'm not sure I'm there yet. And there tends to be, it's, it's, it's natural, it's, it's a curse of all of us, there tends to be an us and them for all of us. Maybe to a lesser degree, maybe to a greater degree, but that is instinctively where our sinful nature drives us. There's an us and a them. God loves us and them. And secondly, he saved you and he saved me in order to love them. Turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. You remember when people would ask Jesus, this happened on a number of occasions in Scripture. I don't think the different accounts are all the same incident. It would make sense that Jesus as a new upcoming itinerant rabbi would be questioned by those who are trying to figure out who he lines up with. And so they ask him, which is the greatest commandment, Jesus? Which one do you think is the most important one? Out of all either the Ten Commandments or out of the 613 commandments in the Old Testament, which is the most important? And Jesus, using the Socratic method, the best way to teach people, I haven't yet to learn this, but the best way to teach people is to ask them questions. And so he's asked them, well, how do you read it? Verse 26, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, when Jesus gave the answer on a couple of occasions, recorded in the other Gospels, he went, he, he went this far. He says, the greatest commandment is to love God with everything. And the second commandment is like the first. It's just as important as the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus tells him, verse 28, write, do this, and you will live. So, you... And you and you and me are called, we have, a, we have this special calling on our lives to love our neighbor. It's not just a human thing, but those of us who have been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ that we sang about this morning have a special calling on our lives to love our neighbor. The question is, what does love look like? What does love look like? Is this it? I, I don't have any ill feelings toward you. I don't want to harm you or hurt you. I wish you well. I really don't see us being friends. Even though you live next door to me or work in the next cubicle or play on my team or ride the bus with me or have children in the same class as me. And I probably won't get around to inviting you to our church either. Is that love for neighbor? Does that qualify as what Jesus was thinking? 
the man Jesus was having this conversation with also wanted to know, well, he, he was less concerned about what love looked like, like than he was, who's my neighbor? Verse 29, the man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And, of course, Jesus tells him the story of the Good Samaritan. And we'll pick up the verses in just a couple minutes, but here's the background. A man, Jewish man, is mugged and attacked. <clears throat> Maybe the police have been defunded. And he's left for dead. Nobody to help him. And along comes three men. Now, the world, you have to understand that the world in Jesus' day was looked at by the Jewish person as comprising only two groups, Jew and Gentile, or we could say it this way, Jew and not Jew. The Jewish person saw themselves as the beloved of God, the treasure of God, and everybody else wasn't. And the man who's been attacked is Jewish. And along comes his pastor. And he has an appointment, or he doesn't like to get his hands bloody, keeps going. And then along comes his youth pastor. And his youth pastor has an important soccer match that one of his kids is playing in. He's got to be at, and he keeps going. And then along comes a Samaritan. Now, the only people worse to a Jewish mind than a Gentile was a Samaritan because a Samaritan was half Jew and half Gentile. And the Bible says in verse 34 or 33 that he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. He put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn where he took care of him. And the next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. And then Jesus asked the man the question. Which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? And the man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Now, I don't think that particular illustration works for us. Because I don't know anybody who wouldn't stop and care for a man in the ditch, at least call 911. If you've got a first aid kit, help him whatever, in whatever way you can. Maybe even call the hospital later and find out how he's doing. I, I, I don't know anybody like that that wouldn't do that. Let's use a different example. Let's say in your development, which if it's like mine is all white with the exception of one person. So this applies to me. And up the street, let's say five houses down from you, a black family moves in. And because you're not racist, you're not prejudiced, when you drive past their house, you wave on the way to work. But three years later, you still don't know their name, 
You don't know where he works. You don't know how old their children are. You don't know where they grew up. There's somebody three blocks away from you who knows all those things. They've come over, they introduce themselves, they say, hey, we're having a neighborhood picnic in about four weeks, love to have you join us. Build a relationship, have them over for games, have them for dinner occasionally. And Jesus says, which man was a neighbor I think if we're going to have an impact on race relations, we're going to have to do more than simply say, I don't have anything against you. And what better place for us to make progress in this than in the church? Because in the church, us and them, I'll put those two words in quotes, us and them evaporate. In the church, us and them evaporate. Now, if you were a Jewish person in the first century, the code that you lived by excluded everybody who wasn't a Jew, excluded non-Jews. And you think about most of the early Christians were from Jewish background. They had been Jews and came to faith in Christ and you read about the tensions that that created in the early church as Gentiles started to come of faith in Christ. And the Apostle Peter was a devout Jew. And if you know the story from Acts chapter 10, he had this vision one day over lunchtime. He went to take a nap and he was hungry. And God used that opportunity to give him a vision. And he dropped this sheet down from heaven. It was filled with animals that Jews weren't allowed to eat. And he told Peter, kill and eat. And if you, he was showing it to you and I, he'd probably just open a refrigerator door and say, help yourself. And the animals that were in there were all unclean animals. That were, he wasn't supposed to eat a crocodile. He wasn't supposed to eat a, uh, a rabbit. He wasn't supposed to eat a pig. I always said I'd, made, I'd never made a Jew and I'd never made a Muslim because I like bacon too much. And Peter says, no, I'm not going to eat that. I, I don't eat anything unclean. And God says, don't call things unclean that I've called clean. That happened three times. And so Peter was prepped for the knock that came on the door shortly after that. And a man says, I'm a servant of a Roman centurion, and he has sent me here to get you because an angel of the Lord told him to come get you. Now, all Gentiles were unclean to Jewish people. And yet God says, don't, don't be calling things unclean that I have now called clean. And so Peter, when he shows up the door, the centurion, he says in verse 34, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. You should underline that word in your Bible. Highlight it. No favoritism. That means nobody goes to the head of the line ahead of other people. 
He shows no favoritism. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. This is the message of good news. This is the gospel message for the people of Israel, that, there's no peace with, that there is peace with God through Jesus Christ, who's Lord of all. In other words, no longer peace with God through your rituals and the fact that you're Jewish. And bless their hearts, the Holy Spirit had a massive amount of twisted thinking to undo. It's true that Jewish people lived in animosity to Gentiles for some legitimate reasons. God had clearly told them when they came into the land that they were to exterminate all the people groups there. And it wasn't because God was racist, because this wickedness was so high that God knew if anybody stayed behind, they they were going to be a, a burr under the Jewish saddle spiritually. Of course, that's what happened. They didn't exterminate the people they were supposed to. And so again and again, Israel would end up worshiping those neighbors' gods. That was the whole issue. You're not supposed to intermarry, not because there's something wrong with those people uh, existentially, but because they worship other gods. By the way, footnote, if you're a follower of Jesus, marry only a follower of Jesus. That doesn't mean that your mate can't by the mercy of God, someday come to Christ after you make a huge mistake and marry him or her. I'm just saying there's a reason that God wants you to say, if I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm only going to marry a follower of Jesus. And it'll not only save you a lot of grief, but it'll glorify God. Jew would gladly walk extra miles to avoid running into a Gentile or, God forbid, a Samaritan. And a Jew would invite Jewish neighbors to the picnic, but not Gentile neighbors. And then he and his Jewish friends would swap derogatory jokes about Gentiles when, quote, those people were out of earshot. The code excluded non-Jews, but when Jesus arrives on the scene, Jesus not only changed the code, he changed, listen, he changed the believer's DNA. He didn't just change the rules about how they were to operate with other people that were different from them. He changed their DNA. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Beginning of verse 14. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. Now, if you just stop there, you might think that Paul was talking about the peace between God and man that Jesus brought about reconciled sinful human beings with a holy God. But he clarifies that's not the peace he's talking about. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. In other words, he he moved them off the table for Jews to observe. And now the The things that are going to bring friction between Jews and Gentiles, as we see in Acts 15, are come to an end. He did this by ending the system of law with his commandments and regulations and made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. That's the church. And together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross and our hostility toward each other was put to death. I love that line. 
he did this. He pulled this off in his own body on the cross. You see all kinds of together terminology in here. Verses 14 and 15, brought peace. Verse 14, united. Verse 14, broke down wall, separated us. Verse, four, uh, verse 15, made a single new group out of two. Verse 16, put to death hostility. I love that. This is what the body of Christ should be like. No matter what group you're a part of, when we are, excuse me, when we're in the church, those groups begin to fade into the group, the body of Christ. Could Jesus could he do that between white Christians and black Christians or Christians of color or between white Christians and black Americans whom we pray will one day be black Christians? Could he? I have four points of application. <clears throat> and the first one comes from this Ephesians 2 passage, verse 11. Remember that we were once the them. And what I mean by that is we were the outsiders. As far as I know, there's very, very, very few people of Keystone who are from Jewish background. And verse 11, chapter 2 of Ephesians says, don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. Used to be outsiders. You see, it's not enough that we think about other people as equal to us. Are we willing to take whatever efforts necessary to create the prospect for them to be insiders? Remember that we were once the them. We were the Gentiles. Once upon a time, God's favor rested on Jewish people. We were, as he goes on to say in verse 12, apart from Christ. The fact that we are now part of Christ gives us great privileges and great responsibility. Two, that we repent as white Christians of racial slurs and racially tinged jokes. In the years that Keystone has existed, on two occasions that I remember, I have been present when someone in the congregation told a racial joke. And to my shame, I said nothing. And brothers and sisters, it's not enough for us simply not to do it. We have got to be on the front lines of calling that out. Because after all, we're trying to build racial relationships. Repent of racial slurs and racially tinged jokes. Third, that as white Christians, we repent of our isolation. 
Many of us live in a white bubble with few or no black friends. We have no idea what it's like to be black in America. Have no one to ask, what's it really like? Or maybe we have some black friends, but we keep the conversation safe. We don't want to rock the boat. Maybe it never occurred to us to ask, what's it like for you to live in the United States as this minority with all of the history that goes before us? Maybe it never occurred to us to ask, or maybe we don't really want to know. I've had more conversations about this in the past year than I've had in my entire life. And one of the things that I have discovered is how blind we are as white Americans to what we don't know about what it's like to be a person of color in the United States. Repent of our isolation. And that's going to require some intentionality about the people that God brings across our paths who are not white. Lastly, I want to realize an integrated church. And what I mean by that is not artificial, artificial percentages. We want to be a church that's half white, half black, or half people of color. That's program stuff. That's not about race relations. But when I look around and I see us predominantly, far and away predominantly white, I ask, why is that? On March 7th, we had an elders meeting. It was a shepherding meeting, and that gives me a half hour of time to do some teaching with our elders, and then we spend the next hour praying for you. And I had been struggling for four days about what I thought God wanted me to teach that night. And I didn't know, and I didn't know. And I prayed and prayed from Monday to Thursday. The meeting was 8 o'clock Thursday evening. I, God, what do you want me to talk about? 1 o'clock on Thursday afternoon, God said, I want you to talk about race in the church. And one of the stories I told the elders that night was about an incident back in 1994. It was, it was the first year our church had started in 1993. And within about three months, we had a young uh, black couple that began to attend Keystone. They stayed about four weeks, and then they vanished. And so about six, eight months later, a black family began attending. Two or three children, I forget, from Christiana. We're here about six weeks, and then they vanished. And I'd gotten acquainted with him a bit. I don't remember his name. I'm going to call him Paul. I remember her name. And I said, Paul, uh, I said, have you guys decided whether Keystone's going to become your church home or well, what, what are your thoughts? And he was very gracious. And the, the, kind of the conversation that I have when I make those kinds of phone calls, nobody wants to own up to what's really going on. And... Uh, and tell me things I don't want to hear. And I kept pushing, and I, I finally said, Paul, is it because you're the only black family in a white church? And it took him a while to get the answer out. He beat around the bush for a while, but finally said, yeah. And I said, would you mind if I'd come down and talk with you and your wife for a bit? And I said, I'm not, I'm not going to pressure you, but I'd just like to have a conversation with you. And they said, sure. 
So I went down and spent two hours with him that evening. And I said, brother, they were Christians. I said, brother, I get it. If, you, if, if, if a church is going to become more than simply monochromatic, just one color, somebody that's of a different color has to be the first to break that. And I said, I can't imagine what it's like to do that. <clears throat> I told Chuck Taylor a number of years ago, I said, I would love to go visit Brightside Baptist Church in Lancaster, which is mostly black. I said, but I'll be honest, I'm scared to death. I'm afraid I'll go in, I'll, I won't know to do the right thing, I'll do the wrong thing, and I'll, I'll be thinking about how people are perceiving me. And he said, I'll take you. He said, we'll go in some Sunday. While I was on sabbatical in 2015, we did that at a black church down in, in uh, Coatesville. And I was one of seven white people in a congregation of about 200. I had been terrified by myself. And, and so I, 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 under, I understand that. But here's the thing, and it's interesting, the last three years we've had more people of color either visit or even visit and stay, at least for a season, than we have the whole history, 27-year history of Keystone Church. But they don't stick. And I want you to put yourself in that position that I've contemplated being in, going to a black church, white, one of the only white people, and try to imagine what it must be like What will it take for you to contemplate going back? Will it be enough if somebody, some one person, maybe one person says hi to you and then they move on to talk to other people? Will that be enough? Or an usher or a greeter perhaps whose assignment it is to have a conversation, will that be enough? It was interesting, I was watching a video this week of a pastor up in Seattle who after four years at this one church said, God, I don't, I don't know, unless you do something, I, I've got to figure out an exit plan here. And then something happened on a Sunday morning and people ended up at the front of the, uh, front of the uh, auditorium weeping and confessing sin. And they ended up putting all of their programs on hold for six months and they just had a Sunday morning and a prayer meeting, Tuesday night. And I'm not advocating doing this. I'm just telling what they did. And it was interesting. He told about what happened in the wake of that. And you know one of the interesting things that happened? This, he said this in passing. Video wasn't about this. It was about life-changing prayer. But he said, lo and behold, we started to become more diverse. Different kinds of people coming into our fellowship that we would have never expected. And I wonder, I wonder if God needs to do a great work of grace, not only in our hearts as individuals, but in our hearts as a church. In order for the prospect, I don't think I'll see it in my ministry time yet here at Keystone, but in the long haul, I shared with the elders that night, I dream of a church where it's normal if you're a person of color and you're looking for a church home to come to Keystone. That it's not out of the realm of possibility that if you're 
uh, a person of color and you're struggling with some real tough stuff in your life and you want to look into some spiritual things that you actually get up and decide, I'll try Keystone Church. It's near me. I hear that there are other black Americans there, other black Christians there. Know much about Christianity, but worth a shot. And as we close this morning, I, I just want us to be quiet a little bit and talk to God about that prospect. If he's laying that on your heart, say, God, what would it take? And would you do it in our church? We can't fix a systemic or structural problem. We can't fix a problem. But our own, in our own little corner, in our, little, our communities, in our towns, on our streets, and in our church, we can make a difference. Let's talk to the Lord. Father, may the day come where it's as comfortable and normal for a black American or a Latino American or an Asian American to come to Keystone as it is for a white American. And that it becomes instinctive for us. We see a people, person of color these days, it's pretty evident they're visitors. These days, we can identify them quickly and go over and say, good morning, my name is Keith. It's good to have you here this morning. What's your name? Oh, where are you from? Um, how did you hear about Keystone? Uh, we're having a fellowship meal afterwards. Would you like to join us? That just become normal for us. We can't fix this nation's problems. We can't fix an, an, an it, an ism. But one by one, we can, as white Christians in this nation, we can make a difference. We can make a difference. Pour measures of your grace into our lives so that then those measures of grace can flow out from our lives into the lives of others. And that we would anticipate with great excitement the day when we are all gathered around the throne from our own individual groups and yet are one because of Jesus Christ. Thank you for our Savior who has done the impossible, dismantling walls, making the two one. And may that be lived out in clear plain view of all the world. In Jesus' name, amen.